Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, September 9th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will present part two of our commentary on Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, and this is subtitled, Angels, Spirits, and Men. I pray that we don't create more confusion over some of those topics before the evening is over. In the first six verses of his Epistle to the Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus extolled Yahshua Christ as the ultimate prophet and messenger of Yahweh God and asserted that all of the messengers or angels of God must worship him. But making this assertion, Paul quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 32, and doing so he also indirectly asserted that Yahshua Christ is God, because the statement which Paul cited from Deuteronomy 32 refers directly to God. We presented a brief examination of that chapter of Deuteronomy, which revealed that it contains an early outline of the plan which Yahweh had for the children of Israel that they would be scattered on account of their sins, and then they would ultimately be offered salvation and reconciliation as their God takes vengeance on his enemies. So making this association here in Hebrews, Paul equates the Son, Yahshua Christ, as being one and the same with Yahweh, that God of war and vengeance described by Moses, as the word of God also says in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. If there is no other God with him, then Yahshua Christ must be him. There are frequently similar statements in Isaiah which are also related to the salvation of the children of Israel, such as in Isaiah chapter 45, where we read from verse 21, Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh, and there is no God else beside me? a just God, and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be saved. All the ends of the earth, the children of Israel scattered to the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. In relation to those same opening verses of Hebrews, we had already pointed out another similar statement which was directly connected, or which is directly connected with the gospel of Christ. From Isaiah chapter 52, where the word of Yahweh says, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. And then we compare that passage to the words of Christ in the gospel, where the apostles asked to see God the Father. And Christ replied, that he that has seen me has seen the Father. So we see that here in Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus referred to Yahshua Christ and said, when he, meaning God himself, introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world, 
meaning Christ. He says, and all the messengers of Yahweh must worship him. And doing so, Paul must have been referring to Deuteronomy chapter 32, as there is no place in scripture such as that where such a statement was made, except for the 97th Psalm. But the 97th Psalm is actually describing many of the same hopes expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 32, in the expected vengeance of God on his enemies and of the vanity of idolatry because only Yahweh is God. So if Christ is God, he must be Yahweh. In chapter 10 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Paul spoke of the wanderings of Israel with Moses and said that they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them And that rock was Christ. Earlier, in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, we read these words ascribed to Moses. My doctrine shall drop as the rain. Moses speaking for God. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of Yahweh, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Then later in Deuteronomy chapter 32, there are further references to that same rock, where Moses spoke of the enemies of God, and it says in reference to the children of Israel, How should one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and Yahweh had shut them up? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges, meaning that the rock of the children of Israel was Yahweh their God, and the gods of the other nations were not. So the Paul of Tarsus, Yahshua Christ, according to his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, was the rock of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And therefore, Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh God incarnate. Which is why Paul says, citing Deuteronomy chapter 32, that Yahweh is introducing the firstborn son into the world. That rock is the stone of stumbling, which we find later in the Psalms and in Isaiah. So in reference to verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1, we maintain that Paul is making this assertion, that where Yahweh in Deuteronomy chapter 32 outlined his plan for the children of Israel in the Song of Moses, he was indeed introducing the firstborn son into the inhabitable world as that is the beginning of the revelation of his plan to come into the world himself in order that he may save his people. Thus far, in this epistle to the Hebrews, Paul has magnified the Son, equated him to God himself, and explained that the Son is greater than the angels, 
or messengers. Here, as we hope to make evident, Paul seems to be using the word for messengers or angels in several ways. First, there are the heavenly messengers who had announced things to men in the Old Testament and sometimes in the Gospel. Then there are the prophets of old who had announced the will of God to men in the past. And in a sense, they are also messengers, so they cannot be discounted. Therefore, in the opening of this epistle, Paul had also attested that the Son is now the vessel through which God speaks to man. Now Paul turns to discuss the messengers once again. However, Paul had already repeated the scripture, which insists that all of the messengers of God must worship the Son. In that, he includes both the heavenly messengers, which shall become evident later in chapter 2 of this epistle, and the messengers of the Son himself, beginning with the apostles of Christ, which are also referenced here. Since the time of the revelation of Christ, there are no heavenly angels communicating with man, because the Son chose to employ earthly messengers, and we hope that will also become immediately evident here. So the epistle to the Hebrews is an epistle explaining several transitions from the prophets to the Son, from the rituals, the propitiation in rituals, to the propitiation which is in Christ, and from the heavenly messengers to the messengers of the gospel. And that is explained in the very next verse, in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 1. And then to the messengers, he says, He is making his messengers spirits, and his servants a flame of fire. Here Paul quotes from Psalm 104, verse 4, where in a list of the wondrous acts of Yahweh, it says, Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers of flaming fire. And likewise, the word for servants here in this verse of Hebrews may have been read as ministers. An examination of the psalm reveals that it contains many references to the elements of the creation of God, which actually could be allegories for people. We will not discuss them all here, but we shall assert that in this particular verse, we have a Hebrew parallelism where the descriptions of angels as spirits and of ministers as a flame of fire refer to the same entities. There certainly seems to be a distinction being made here. There are the heavenly messengers, or angels, which are apparently what Paul meant where he wrote, and then to the messengers he says. And there are his messengers, meaning the messengers of the firstborn who is mentioned in verse 6, which are ostensibly 
the apostles and the bearers of the gospel of Christ. Another parallelism. So the references to angels are not necessarily references to angels in heaven, as angels can also be men. The first group of messengers are the messengers of God, which seems to be a reference to the heavenly angels who administered the Old Covenant and later administered to Christ on earth. But the second group seems to be a reference to the messengers of Christ on earth, the men whom he had chosen to bear the gospel of the new covenant. There is similar language to the verse from Psalm 104 in the closing verses of Psalm 103. And I'll read from verse 17. But the mercy of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Yahweh has prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless Yahweh, ye his angels, that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye Yahweh, all ye his hosts, Ye ministers of his, that do his pleasure, bless ye Yahweh all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Here the psalm refers to several entities which are actually all the same, but which are being described in different ways. Those who fear God, who keep his covenant and his commandments, his angels that do his commandments, his hosts who are ministers of his, and his works in all places, are all Hebrew parallelisms. They are all descriptive statements referring to the same entities, to those who follow the will of their God regardless of whether they are in heaven or on earth. As Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 42, Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger that I have sent. That word messenger is the same word translated angel very often in scripture. Who is blind as he is that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant. In all cases, the messenger and the servant and he that is perfect, being perfected by God, are representative of the children of Israel, which is quite clear from the context of the chapter. But the word messenger in Isaiah 42.19 is the same word translated as angel in Psalms 103 and 104 and many other passages of scripture. So we cannot imagine that every reference to an angel or to a messenger is to a heavenly messenger. The Apostle John used the term spirit of living men in a very similar way, where he wrote in chapter 4 of his first epistle, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every individual, that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. John was referring to 
embodied spirits, the spirits of men, and not the spirits which were disembodied or in heaven. Likewise here, Paul refers to embodied spirits of men who are messengers of Christ, and not merely to angels in heaven, although in some of his statements he is referring to angels in heaven. Since the ascension of Christ, which is described in Acts chapter 1, it is not evident that any heavenly angel has announced the gospel of Christ on earth. While history is replete with earthly angels announcing the risen Christ in heaven, and while not all angels are men, many angels are indeed men, as many men have been angels. The conclusion here is that Paul is explaining that there are heavenly angels to whom the Christ was announced back in the Old Testament. But these were often, not always, but often perceived as spirits in the accounts of the Old Testament, although sometimes they had human forms. These are addressed here where it says, Then to the messengers he says. Then there are his messengers, the messengers of the firstborn come into the world. These are distinguished from the messengers who he speaks to in the psalm. These are from of the children of Israel who are the messengers of Christ and who shall be made by Yahweh into spirits and into flames of fire. Thusly, for example, it speaks of the forthcoming vengeance of God in Obadiah verse 18. And it says, And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. A similar judgment was made in ancient times against the Assyrians, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 10. And that judgment was carried out in the people of the Scythians and descendants of the ancient Israelites who destroyed Assyria. Prophesying that historical event, the prophet Isaiah had wrote, had written, I'm sorry, and the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars, meaning the thorns and briars of the Assyrian, in one day. So when the children of Israel do the will of their God, he makes them into spirits and flames of fire. This is an allegory, which is quite the opposite of the Old Testament experience, where angels were spirits or flames of fire, sometimes made into men, sometimes appearing also as men. And if we examine the full meaning of the scripture, which Paul has cited here in relation to Christ, we see that Paul is indirectly telling the Hebrews that the righteousness and vengeance of God are found in Yahshua Christ, and that those who turn to Christ and announce his gospel will ultimately be the instruments of God's vengeance and of God's righteousness in the earth.
Where Paul says that Yahweh makes his messengers spirits, Christ himself explains how this works in John chapter 14, where he says, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Then we read a little further on in that chapter. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. And Judith says unto him, Judas says unto him, not Iscariot, and this is a reference to the other Jude, the brother of the Lord, who wrote the epistle. Judas says unto him, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. One manifestation of the Spirit from God abiding with man, which gave men the ability to do things that they otherwise could not do on our own, was the Spirit of Pentecost. The spirit of Pentecost did not change the identities or the personalities of the men who received it, but rather it endowed them with a certain deposit of the power of God so as to change their abilities. All of the children of Israel and of Adam are born with a spirit which is from God. This is the spirit which God forms within man, which is referred to in Zechariah chapter 12. This is the spirit which Paul informs us is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The eternal spirit within man is therefore an element of the Adamic creation, as it says in the wisdom of Solomon, that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. But we see from John chapter 14, that Yahweh God adds from his spirit to the spirits of those men who accept him. And that is what happened at the first Pentecost and in the conversion of lost Israelites in the apostolic age, such as the people of the household of Cornelius, who received the spirit of God upon hearing and accepting the gospel. There are many instances in the Old Testament where things occurred which were exactly similar to the experiences of the apostles that were made possible by the spirit of Pentecost, but which happened for different reasons. One place is in Judges chapter 3, where we read, And when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer to the children of Israel, who delivered them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother of the tribe of Judah. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. 
and Yahweh delivered Kushan Rishaphaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed against Kushan Rishathaim. Likewise, in Judges chapter 6, it says in part, But the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet. And again, in Judges chapter 11, it says, Then the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jephthah. And both Othniel and Jephthah and Gideon, I can't leave him out, were chosen and endowed with the ability to deliver Israel from their enemies at various times. These men were already accounted as the children of God. Deuteronomy 14.1 Long before they received this spirit which came upon them, they did not undergo some mystical process to become God's children. And that popular modern conception which is held by the denominational Christians is not found in Scripture. When Elisha the prophet received double the spirit which Elijah had, Elijah was still Elijah, he didn't lose it, and Elisha was still Elisha, but they were both already prophets and children of God. When men who are the children of God are ready to serve God, then he may choose to endow them with a portion of his spirit which, is an, which enables them to fulfill the mission which he wants them to accomplish. That spirit doesn't make them saved. They're already saved. They're already given the promises of God. They're already given the promises of salvation. Christ had already told his apostles that where he was going, they couldn't come, but they would come later. Receiving the spirit of Pentecost didn't change them. It only enabled them to do things that men who were the children of God otherwise couldn't do. Paul makes references to this agreement which Christ speaks of in John chapter 14, to this agreement of the spirit of God within man to the spirit of God himself for instance where he wrote in Romans chapter 8 and he said the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God so the children of God are born with a particular spirit and because they are born with that particular spirit they are able through that spirit to communicate with God when he so chooses. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, now we do not receive the spirit of the society or the world, but that spirit from Yahweh, in which case we should know the things granted to us by Yahweh, which also we speak of, not instructed in words of human wisdom, but instructed in of the spirit from the scripture by the spiritual compounding with the spiritual. And Paul also explains that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Yet the spiritual man does indeed have the capacity to understand those things. So, for instance, and the Spirit of God isn't something you pluck out of thin air, 
For instance, Paul declares that the law is spiritual in Romans chapter 7. And then, after he explains that the natural man cannot keep it, he explains that by the Spirit, a man can keep it in Romans chapter 8. So it is not that men may receive a spirit from God if they keep the law, or if they undergo any ritual, but rather, if men have the Spirit of God in the first place, if they are born from above, then they can choose to keep the law. And then, if they keep the law, if they make that choice, God in turn chooses to deposit his spirit with them, alongside their own. That is what was transpiring with the spirit of Pentecost when the men who received it had already decided to turn to Christ and keep his commandments, to accept the gospel. Men do not receive the Spirit of God with some mystical transformation. Rather, the Spirit they are born with is from God, if indeed they are children of God. When those men turn to obedience in Christ, God dwells with them and works through them. So God makes his messengers spirits, meaning that he adds the power of his spirit through their spirits, so that they can accomplish the tasks which he appoints of them. And those same messengers who are his servants become a flame of fire. Men who are born of the world, or as... as Christ also told them, born from below, are antichrist spirits and cannot keep the law. As Peter says, they cannot keep themselves from sin. So God will never dwell in them. The Apostle John spoke of the ability of Christians to overcome them, but John did not mention any attempt to convert them. From 1 John chapter 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, he knows that God hears us. He that is, he that knoweth God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And it's drawn along those racial lines of kind after kind. Paul wrote concerning the messengers of Christ in verse 7, and immediately turns once again to Christ himself in verse 8. And he says, but in reference to the Son, your throne, O Yahweh, is for eternity, and the scepter of rectitude, or, or righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Now we have interpreted the Greek preposition pros as in reference to here. With the accusative case, among other things, it is said by Liddell and Scott to mean to or towards, in reference to or in relation to in respect of or touching, as we often see in the 
King James Version. There are easier ways to si simply say unto the sun, and the use of the preposition indicates that a stronger meaning was intended. These words which follow are all in reference to the sun. While Paul seems to have distinguished the heavenly messengers from the messengers of Christ in verses 6 and 7, here he is also endeavoring to explain that Christ himself is of a different nature and of a different status than the angels or the heavenly messengers of the scriptures. While the angels were either being sent from God, bodily or spiritual, or transient manifestations of God, the Son is God, and His status is eternal, even though, as Paul shall write later, He was initially made of a lower status than those angels. In the meantime, Paul continues to write in reference to the Son, in verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. For this reason, Yahweh your God has anointed you with an oil of exaltation beyond your companions. And here we're running into a dilemma, a, a dilemma that causes people to, that their brains to diffuse if they don't accept that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The people that insist that Jesus Christ is something of a nature other than God. He's just the Son of God and a righteous man, and he was born first because his spirit existed separately, which is all untrue. They cannot understand some of these conversations because they cannot understand the paradigm that Yahweh God the Father can speak concerning Yahweh God the Son, and that man can view them separately even though they are one and the same, and that a lot of the things that Christ had said in reference to God was from the, the viewpoint of man because he was here to be a man as an example to men. He wasn't here to play God in his earthly ministry. And it's the same thing with the Psalms. That same attitude is seen throughout the Psalms. Here in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 1, Paul quotes Psalm 45 verses 6 and 7 in relation to Christ. The King James Version of that passage very closely agrees with the Greek of the Septuagint. I could translate the Greek of the Septuagint and come out with the way the King James reads in that passage without any damage. And the King James Version reads the passage that Paul is quoting in this manner. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. The Septuagint has lawlessness. That's only an interpretation of the word, and either way is fine. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The Greek of the New Testament manuscripts, which we have followed in this passage, is also nearly identical to that found in the Septuagint. And here we have both a statement and, in our own translation, a dilemma into which we have purposely placed ourselves. 
Here, admittedly, in the Masoretic text, we have the Hebrew word Elohim, a plural of majesty, referring to Yahweh God, three times where God appears in those two verses in the King James Version, and Theos in the Greek of the Septuagint. On many occasions, translating the Christogenian New Testament, we purposely wrote Yahweh for Theos, or God. We are not apologizing for that, because Yahweh is God, and we have explained ourselves at length on other occasions. So we believe that all those who criticize us for having done that are actually themselves questioning whether Yahweh is God, and it is they who are really in a dilemma. When we made our translation, our methods were calculated. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is also both the Father and the Christ, who is the God of the New Testament. And that is a purposeful statement on our part. It's a theological statement enveloped into our Christogenian New Testament translation. So we may have rendered verses 8 and 9 to read here in Hebrews, but in reference to the Son, in Hebrews chapter 1, Your throne, O God, is for eternity. Paul said, let's hear this again. But in reference to the Son, Your throne, O God, is for eternity. And a scepter of rectitude is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and have hated lawlessness. For this reason, God... Your God has anointed you with an oil of exaltation beyond your companions. The 45th Psalm, which Paul is citing here, is apparently an allegory. On the surface, it portrays King David extolling his daughter when you get to the later parts of the psalm. But the underlying meaning seems to be a portrayal of the relationship of love between Yahweh and Jerusalem as his daughter, as seen through the eyes of David. David is speaking to God in the psalm, in these verses. So the throne is not the earthly throne in Jerusalem, but God is also the subject of the anointing, as all the pronouns and verb forms show. So this is indeed a messianic prophecy referring to Christ, God the Father anointing God the Son. Paul quotes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, a song of David addressing Yahweh as God, and says that these words were spoken, even if you accept the King James Version, unto the Son. So in any event, by informing us that these verses of the psalm were written in reference to the Son, or even simply under the Son, as the King James Version has it, Paul of Tarsus is once again asserting that Jesus Christ is God, that the Father and Son are indeed one, that God does talk to himself for the benefit of man, and as Christ himself had said, according to the King James translation of Mark chapter 12, Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Even if Yahweh God 
had given it to David to write these words, they nevertheless refer to Christ, and we see that Christ occupying the throne of God for eternity is indeed one and the same with God. As for the fellows or companions of Christ, their identity is made evident in chapter 2 where Paul says that he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren. The fellows of Christ are the offspring of Abraham, who are accounted as his brethren. Nobody else is accounted as his brethren. Nobody else can be his fellows. In verse 10, which follows, Paul continues to speak concerning the Son, where he attributes to him the things attributed to Yahweh God in the Old Testament. And, and, this is under the Son, these words are spoken in reference to the Son, or unto the Son, and you in the beginning, Yahweh, have laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Those pronouns can only refer to the sun. And they shall perish, yet you will remain. They will all grow old as a garment, and just as a cloak you will roll them as a garment, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. In other words, only God is eternal. That time means nothing to God proves the futility of the efforts given by all those who oppose him. Here in verses 10 through 12, Paul quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And he is still speaking in reference to Christ. Once again, the Greek of the New Testament is nearly identical to the Greek of the Septuagint. The psalm is a prayer for the afflicted, and in an earlier passage, in verse 8, it says, Mine enemies reproach me all the day, and they that are mad against me are sworn against me. The reference to they shall perish, here in verse 11, is a reference to those same enemies in verse 8 of the psalm. Paul writes, informing his readers, that these things relate to Christ. And therefore, in Christ, we continue to find a promise of deliverance from the enemies of God and of preservation to his people Israel. So the very next verse of that psalm reads, The children of thy servants shall continue and their seed shall be established before thee. And the proof that Paul's interpretation of the verses of the psalm, which he cites, retains the entire context of the original psalm is in the very next verse quoted by Paul here, but which is from yet another psalm. And he says in verse 13, of Hebrews chapter 1. Now, has he ever said to any of the messengers, or angels, the heavenly angels are meant here, 
Sit at my right hand until when I would set your enemies as a footstool for your feet. These things, only being promised to Christ, not even the messengers of God can overcome their enemies without him. Here once again, Paul asserts that Christ is exalted above and distinguished from the heavenly messengers of the Old Testament scriptures. Paul, still speaking in reference to Christ, quotes from Psalm 110, a psalm of David, and the first verse reads, Yahweh said unto my Lord, or in the King James Version, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is the very passage over which Christ challenged his adversaries, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 20. And it reads, And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David, therefore, calls him Lord. How is he then his son? In Luke chapter 20, where it says, The Lord saith unto my Lord, both of the words from which Lord is translated are from the Greek word kurios, which is commonly Lord in the New Testament. And so it is in the Septuagint as well. However, in the original Hebrew of the psalm, the first occurrence of Lord is the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, and the second is from the Hebrew word Adon, which is a noun meaning a Lord or a Master. It's sort of an adjective to Kyrios. So the Hebrew should say, Yahweh said unto my Master, it is evident in Luke that Christ, as well as his adversaries, understood that the passage was in reference to the Messiah as David's master, as Paul also informs us here. This passage further demonstrates that Christ is also a manifestation of God, as David would not be compelled to call his son master, unless his son were his superior. That is the paradox Christ presented to his adversaries. Later Christ also attests in Revelation chapter 22 that I am the root and the offspring of David. So he must have been the creator of the race as well as one of its members. Just as here in verse 10 Paul said that these words were spoken in reference to the Son. You, in the beginning, God, or Yahweh, have laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. And ostensibly referring to the same messengers, or angels, Paul continues, Are they not all spirits of service? being sent forth for a ministry for the sake of those being about to inherit salvation. We had seen earlier in this chapter that the true messengers of God worship Christ, 
And if they do not worship Christ, they are not messengers of God. This is true of both the heavenly messengers, whom we would expect to worship Christ, and earthly messengers as well. However, Paul cites this verse to demonstrate to the Hebrews that this man, Yahshua Christ, is exalted above the heavenly messengers according to the scriptures. Here we also see that the true messengers of God work as servants for the sake of the children of Israel, those about to inherit salvation. That was true in the Old Testament scriptures, and it remains true under the New Covenant. If they are not found doing this, then once again, they are not truly messengers of God. They, they might be messengers of some devil or some Jew, but they're not messengers of God. The promises of salvation are exclusively for the children of Israel, so the ministry of service to God should be for their benefit only. And with this, we shall commence with Hebrews chapter 2. On account of all of the testimony of Christ, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I will read verse 1 first. For this reason, it is necessary for us to give more abundant attention to those things heard, that at no time would we drift off. So Paul opens Hebrews chapter 2 with an admonition to his readers. And on account of all the testimony of Christ, which is found in the Old Testament, and which is cited by Paul here, the Hebrews to whom Paul writes should pay all the more attention to the message of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word for drift off, parareo, which is to flow beside or past, or to slip out or slip off, according to Liddell and Scott. So just as Paul had admonished the other Christian assemblies that they should be alert as to what was transpiring in relation to their condition and their expectation of salvation, here he admonished the Hebrews likewise. So he said to the Thessalonians, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that, that they should overtake you as a thief, Ye are all children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. So Paul here admonishes the Hebrews with a very similar warning. Then he continues in that same manner that he did in Thessalonians in the very next verse, in verse 2. If the word spoken was confirmed by messengers or angels, and every transgression and disobedience receives a legitimate recompense, how shall we escape neglecting so great a salvation? In other words, there is no slipping off. You're going to pay one way or another. The easy way is to accept Christ and obey the gospel. 
Both the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greco and the King James Version extend the interrogative, the question, through to the end of verse 4 of this chapter. Other manuscript editors support our reading. Here we see another confirmation of our interpretation of Paul's use of the term for messenger in the previous verses. The spoken word Paul is referring to here are the Old Testament promises of a Messiah that he had just cited throughout verse 1. Throughout, I'm sorry, throughout chapter 1. And which were being confirmed by the apostles who were bearing the gospel of Christ. As the warning that these Hebrews may neglect so great a salvation fully indicates. Therefore, Paul distinguishes the heavenly messengers from the messengers of the gospel who are the apostles of Christ. And the Hebrews to whom he writes had encountered many other apostles besides Paul. As Paul shall explain later in this epistle, where every transgression and disobedience receives a legitimate recompense, without Christ... No transgression has forgiveness, since there is no more propitiation for sin under the law. Understanding that, the consequences of neglecting this salvation are certainly magnified. In these respects, we continue to see that Paul's epistle, which was ostensibly written to Hebrews who were already familiar with the gospel, is also in many aspects a more general epistle, written for a Hebrew audience which was designed to explain the impact and meaning of the gospel from a Hebrew perspective. That's why it doesn't actually repeat the gospel. Next, Paul seems to assert that the Old Testament scriptures were an announcement of the gospel. Where he says which having been received at the beginning, being spoken through the prince, by those hearing is confirmed to us. Yahweh joining in testimony with both signs and wonders and various works of power and apportionments of Holy Spirit in accordance with his will. As we had explained at the beginning, happened at the spirit of Pentecost at the first Christian Pentecost. There is a lot being said in a few words here, and a powerful argument for those reading this epistle to continue reading it and to consider what it says. Paul is attesting that the word spoken was received at the beginning, which refers to the words of the Old Testament scriptures in reference to Christ, which he has thus far followed from Deuteronomy through the Psalms. Then Paul attests that these were also the things spoken of by Christ in his earthly ministry, as the gospel of Christ is indeed the confirmation of the Old Testament promises to Israel. Then Paul attests here that there is a confirmation for those bearing the gospel with the acceptance of the message by those who have already turned to Christ, who are those hearing. Finally, 
Paul attests that the miracles of the apostolic age, granted with the spirit of Pentecost, are a confirmation from God himself of all of these other things which he has attested. So in this manner, Paul endeavors to convince the Hebrews that Christ is the fulfillment of their Old Testament faith. And then Paul says... For he did not subject to messengers or to angels that coming inhabitable world of which we speak. And as it was in verse 6 of chapter 1, the phrase inhabitable world is from the Greek word oikumene, referring to the dwelling place of the Adamic race or the Greco-Roman world of the time of Christ. The two phrases basically correlate with one another. Here Paul seems to be alluding to the fact that the ancient Hebrews perceived the kingdoms of this world to be ruled over by angels, fallen or otherwise, which is evident in the accounts of the conquest of ancient Israel over kingdoms controlled by the Rephaim, and also in places such as Daniel chapter 10. It is also evident in other places in Hebrew apocryphal literature, such as in references to Gilgamesh, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Gilgamesh was a Rephaim and the king of Iraq. And fallen angels ruled over the kingdoms of antiquity. The coming inhabitable world of which Christians speak is the kingdom of heaven. And God has subjected it to himself alone through Yahshua Christ, which is the message Paul has conveyed by citing the Psalms in reference to the scepter and throne of God in the preceding verses. So once again, Paul endeavors to show that according to the scriptures, Christ is superior to all of the former angels of God, those of the Old Testament, fallen or heavenly. This argument is made to demonstrate that the gospel of Christ is superior both to Moses and the prophets and a fulfillment of Moses and the prophets. And he says in verse 6, and we will only read the first phrase, rather one has testified saying somewhere. Referring to one in the statement, rather, one has testified, Paul seems to be referring to one of the messengers of the previous statement, and he is, because some of the messengers were prophets as well. David, the author of the 8th Psalm, which Paul is about to cite, is the one here in, rather, one has testified. So we may count among the messengers of the Old Testament not only the heavenly angels, but also the men who spoke for God. However, where Paul says, saying somewhere, Paul seems to be uncertain of where this passage was written. That is possible if Paul is authoring this epistle early in the term of his arrest in Caesarea and has not had an opportunity to search the scriptures for the citation which he is making. Perhaps the statement is also a, a, a I'm sorry, Perhaps the statement is also a reflection of Paul's humility, 
where he readily admits that he is not quite certain in which writing of the scriptures the passage he is referring to is found, while also revealing to us that perhaps he has cited all of these things from memory. To continue the verse, What is man that you would be mindful of him, or a son of man that you would watch over him? You have lowered him some bit below, I'm sorry, some bit beyond the messengers. In honor and dignity you have crowned him. You have subjected all things beneath his feet. Here in verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes from Psalm, from the 8th Psalm, verses 4 through 6. The Psalm itself refers to the creation of a Danic man described in Genesis chapter 1. And we will read the entire psalm because it's rather short. O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Quiet the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Man is minuscule compared to the magnificence of the creation of God. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yeah, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But the Adamic man had fallen from the purpose which Yahweh had intended for him as it is described in Genesis chapter 3. A thousand years being a day to God, the last 7,500 years have all been a part of the process of correction, so that man may attain to the purpose which God created for him for. At the same time, Paul is citing this psalm in relation to both man and to Yahweh God incarnate as man as we shall see below in verse 9. So that is why when we created the Christianity New Testament, we capitalized the occurrences of him in verse 7, the occurrences of the pronoun in verse 7. As it refers to Christ, as well as to man in general. Paul explains why this verse relates to Christ in the balance of this chapter. To finish presenting verse 8, because man was created for God's entertainment. To please God, man was created. So God has come as a man. There are many reasons for the manifestation of the Messiah. Man was created for his good pleasure. To finish presenting verse 8, Therefore, while he would subject all things to him, 
he left nothing unsubjected to him. Now, notice how Paul is speaking of something which is inevitable, as if it already happened. But in the next sentence, he's telling us that it didn't happen yet. That's not a conflict on the part of Paul. Christians, people who truly have faith in God, speak of things which are inevitable as if they had happened. Just as God in Romans chapter 4, Paul explains that God speaks of those things that will be as if they had already happened. Therefore, while he would subject all things to him, he left nothing unsubjected to him. But now, (coughs) we do not yet see all things being subjected to him. Paul had taught these same things in relation to Christ and the Adamic man in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he wrote, Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner in Christ all shall be produced alive, but each in its own order, the first fruit Christ, then those of the anointed at his arrival, then the consummation, or the fulfillment, when he should hand over the kingdom to Yahweh, who is also the Father, when he shall abolish, and that too is symbolic, when he shall abolish all rule and all license and power. Indeed, it is necessary for him to reign, and this is the point of citing this verse, until he should place all of the enemies under his feet. The last enemy abolished is death. Therefore, all are subjected under his feet. Now, until it may be said that it is evident that all things have been subjected because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself and until all things are in subjection to him then also the son himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself in order that Yahweh may be all things among all and everything that he didn't create, will be gone in the lake of fire. Death is the last enemy to be abolished. And throughout these Psalms, which Paul cites in relation to Christ, we see that there are many more enemies which must be destroyed before then. However, we do see from two of Paul's letters that Christ does not yet rule and that all things are not yet subject to him. That will not be fulfilled until all of his enemies are destroyed, those who refuse to be, or those who are created in violation of his law, so they cannot be subject to him. This will not be fulfilled until all of his enemies are destroyed, as it is described in Revelation chapters 18 through 20. Christians proclaim Christ as king, and he is. Why? Because it's inevitable. However, the proclamation is made in anticipation of its fulfillment, not because it is already fulfilled. Thusly, Paul continues in this same light in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2. Yet we see Joshua being made some bit lower than the messengers through the suffering of death being crowned with honor and dignity so that by favor of Yahweh he would taste death on behalf of all. 
It was suitable to him, through whom all things are, and by whom all things are, bringing many sons to honor to perfect the originator of their salvation through sufferings. Both this verse and the psalm which Paul cites in reference to man indicate that both David and Paul believed that the heavenly angels already existed when man was created, or else man could not have been made somewhat lower than the angels, as the psalm and Paul's citation of it both infer. This also helps to prove that Genesis chapter 1 is not a full explanation of the entirety of God's creation, contrary to the claims of many denominational churches. The reasons for the Passion of the Christ are several. One most important aspect is found in the relationship between Yahweh and Israel as a nation, where the husband was compelled to die so that the wife would not suffer the the ultimate penalty of the law, which she deserved for her sin. Here Paul conveys another aspect, that Christ could not justly judge mankind unless he experienced life as a man, and unless he himself experienced judgment from the perspective of man. We have an adage where we attest that we do not want to be judged by one who has not walked in our shoes. Therefore God, having experienced the judgment and life of men, the same cannot be said to him when he judges mankind. He has walked in our shoes. Furthermore, in another aspect, by his own words, he has become the legitimate chief of all men. Christ being the ultimate servant to his own race, by dying so that they may live, so that they are not penalized by the judgments of the law, becomes the head of all. This he established in Matthew chapter 20, where he said, But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister or servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant or slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Here it must also be noted that where Paul used the word many in Hebrews 2.10, a word which means many, where he mentioned the objective of bringing many sons to honor, or where Christ attested in Matthew chapter 20 that he came to give his life a ransom for many. Just because the word many appears, that does not exclude any. Setting one in contrast to many of a fixed number does not necessarily exclude any of that same number. Many wordsmiths would use such an argument craftily to deny that all Israel shall be saved, even in opposition to the scriptures which tell us explicitly that none of Israel shall be lost. And Paul's next statement underlines the exclusivity of the promises of God in Christ. And he says, for both he sanct- 
For both he sanctifying, he doing the sanctifying, it is Christ who is sanctifying Israel in his death, and those being sanctified are all sprung from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Paul made a similar profession in Romans chapter 8, where he also spoke concerning the children of Israel. Because the scripture tests that Yahweh only knew and recognized the children of Israel. For instance, in Amos 3.2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And Paul wrote that for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The phrase here, the Greek phrase, Hex henos pantes, which here in verse 11 is translated all sprung from one, may have been written are all of one household, or are all from one family, as Paul had written in Galatians chapter 6 of the family or the household of the faith. It is the same preposition, heck, which the King James translators rendered as sprang out in the phrase our Lord sprang out of Judah meaning of the tribe of speaking of the tribe of his nativity which is found in Hebrews 7.14 so the King James translates heck as sprang out in Hebrews chapter 7 we translate it as sprung from here in Hebrews 2.11 Joseph Thayer, in his notes concerning the preposition, the same preposition, ek, in Thayer's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament on page 190, explains that where it is used of people, it denotes the origin, source, or cause of their generation, birth, race, lineage, or nativity. As Paul had explained often in his epistles, and in Romans chapter 4 especially, the promise to Abraham was sure to all the seed, whether they be Judeans of the circumcision, such as these Hebrews, or Israelites of the ancient dispersions, who were nevertheless born of the faith of Abraham, as Abraham believed that his seed would become many nations. And as the Romans were also one of those nations prophesied by God to descend from Abraham's seed. They are all sprung from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. None of them were Kenyans or Egyptians or Chinamen or on and on and on. The next verse compounds Paul's message of exclusivity, saying, I will announce your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And this is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. And the 22nd Psalm is a messianic prophecy in its entirety. Reading the surrounding passages, David had written, Save me from the lion's mouth, 
for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will praise thee. Ye that fear Yahweh, praise him, all ye seed of Jacob. Glorify him and fear him, all ye seed of Israel. So the brethren, which Paul had in mind, are the same brethren which David had in mind, which are the seed of Jacob, and which are the seed of Israel, another Hebrew parallelism. The lion in the psalm is an allegory for the enemies of Christ. As Peter had said that the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And Paul says in verse 13, And again, I will be confident in him. And again, behold, I and the children which Yahweh has given me. The phrase in the first citation may have been written, I will trust in him. Similar statements can be found in the Hebrew at Psalm 18.2 and in the Septuagint at 2 Samuel 22.3. However, an examination of Isaiah chapter 8 verses 17 and 18 revealed that to be the source Paul is quoting for both of these statements. Where he says, and again, and again, that chapter of Isaiah is a criticism against Israel for their sins. And we will read a longer passage from Brenton's English of the Septuagint. Because once again, it sees Paul upholding the exclusivity of the message of the gospel for the children of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, with a strong hand they revolt from the course of the way of this people, saying, Let them not say it is hard, for whatsoever this people says is hard. But fear not ye their fear, neither be dismayed. Sanctify ye the Lord himself, and ye shall be thy he shall be thy fear. And if thou shalt trust in him, he shall be to thee for a sanctuary, and ye shall not come against him as, a, as against a stumbling stone, neither as against the falling of a rock. But the houses of Jacob are in a snare, and the dwellers in Jerusalem in a pit, ostensibly because of all their sin. Therefore many among them shall be weak and fall and be crushed, and they shall draw nigh, and men shall be taken securely. Then shall those who seal themselves, that they may not learn the law, be made manifest. And one shall say, I will wait for God, who has turned away his face from the house of Jacob. And I will trust in him. Behold, these are the passages Paul quotes here. And this is the context that he quotes them in. Behold, I am the children which Yahweh has given me. And they shall be for signs and wonders in the house of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Sion. So this is also a messianic prophecy. And the children which Yahweh God gave to his Christ are from among those same children of Israel. As Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter, 20, John chapter 17, from verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So Paul continues in this same context in, his ver in verse 14, and he says, Therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same, the same flesh and the same blood, that through death he would annul him having the power of death, that is, the false accuser, and he would release them, as many as whom in fear of death throughout all of their lives were subject as slaves. We don't have time to speak about every aspect of these verses. The devil has the power of death. As the Apostle John says in his first epistle, because the whole society lies in the power of the evil one, as it is translated in the Christogenian New Testament. The false accuser, or the devil, was the author of death when he rebelled from God and was cast out of heaven. This representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil then deceived the woman in the garden with the lie that ye shall not surely die, and she did. Therefore, as Paul attested in Romans chapter 5, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed an error resembling the transgression of Adam. That helps to explain why all things are not subject under the feet of God and his Christ at this present time. As we have seen Paul attest in diverse epistles, and what had happened at the beginning has been 7,500 years in correcting. However, a thousand years are but a day to God. And here our commentary is brief. For the sake of completing this chapter and our general commentary on Paul's theme throughout the arguments which he has presented here, perhaps in the near future we will pick up from this, from this subject here. As Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the nations of the world were all taken away in the worship of devils. As Paul had warned Timothy, this situation would continue through the later times, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The children of Israel, by the promises made to Abraham, were preserved in their kind through the power of God, and it was given to them to be the vessel through which God would right the world. By the time Paul had written his epistles, the children of Israel had already become the heirs of the wider Adamic society. And Paul's ministry to the nations was conducted to those nations which came from the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he says in his next verse, in verse 16, For surely not that of the messengers, the heavenly messengers, has he taken upon himself, but he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham. The phrase taken upon himself is translated from the medium voice form of the verb epilambano. With the medium voice in Greek, generally the initiator of the action is the same as the recipient of the action. Therefore, he took the seed of Abraham for himself, or here, upon himself. 
Yet even without the added words, the meaning is clear, that Yahweh God chose to take upon himself the seed of Abraham in order to accomplish the things which Paul describes here. So once again we see that Yahshua Christ is one with God. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to take upon himself the seed of anything if only God has that creative ability. But how could Christ take upon himself the seed of messengers or angels? Which Paul infers is a possibility here. How could he do that if the angels are in heaven only? Here it is evident that Paul is referring to the nature of the fallen angels who are not in heaven and are who the vehicle by which the devil still holds the reins of the power of death until all of the enemies of Christ are finally destroyed. The seed of the messengers is found in the races which have not descended from Abraham, and, with, and they have all become mixed with the branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we won't have time to elaborate on that here. So Paul continues in respect of Christ, and he says in verse 17, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren, that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh, to make a propitiation for the failures of the people. In what he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to help those being tested. And of course, he becomes our judge because he walked in our shoes. So he becomes a righteous judge, being God who experienced life as a man. Yahweh promised that Abraham's seed would inherit the earth. And Yahweh came as Messiah, as one of Abraham's descendants, in order that he may rule as king over his own people, fulfilling the promises to Abraham, fulfilling the law in relation to Israel the bride and correcting the circumstances where the people rejected Yahweh as king and demanded an earthly king. In that way, Yahweh would ultimately be their king in an earthly form, just, just as they had demanded. Being firstborn in the spirit, he is also the only legitimate claimant to the original Adamic priesthood, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, as Paul will describe him later in this epistle. Giving himself on behalf of the people that they may live, he makes the ultimate sacrifice and brings an end to the Levitical priesthood, which Paul also explains later in this epistle. Furthermore, having been judged by men, he asserts a righteous ability to judge men. And being God, he therefore becomes the legitimate judge of all. As we had said earlier, the reasons for the passion of the Christ are indeed several, and every aspect of the history of our Adamic race is summed up in him. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.